This is our lesson that there is no God. And this is like kids in primary school. And the teacher said to little Tommy, uh, Tommy, do you see the tree outside? And Tommy looked out the window and said, yes, yes, miss. The teacher said, Tommy, do you see the grass outside? And he looked and said, yep, I see the grass, miss. He said, go outside and look up and see if you see the sky, Tommy. So Tommy disappears. A few minutes later, he reappeared and said, yes, I saw the sky. And the teacher said, did you see God? Tommy said, no, I didn't see God. That's my point, the teacher said. You see, you can't see God because he isn't there. He just doesn't exist. Another little girl in the class pops her hand up and said, Miss, do you mind if I ask Tommy some questions? I said, sure, go ahead. So she said to Tommy, Tommy, did you see the tree outside? I said, yeah, I saw the tree. Did you see the grass outside, Tommy? Yes, I saw the grass outside, no problem. And did you see the sky? Yeah, I saw the sky. Do you see the teacher, Tommy? Yeah, I see the teacher. Do you see her brain? (laughs) No, I, I don't see her brain. The girl said, then according to what we've been taught today, she doesn't have one. I like that little girl. <laughs> so tonight I'm going to do some atheist bashing. So if you're, if you're an atheist, welcome. <laughs> Have fun. It's your turn tonight, sunshine. Wisdom. Wisdom of God. You see, I have to say, let's, let's just take a moment to define wisdom. Wisdom is a lot more than just knowledge. Because you get a lot of people who get tons more degrees in Fahrenheit, yet they don't have a scooby how to live. Their lives are falling absolutely apart. They, they've got lots of knowledge, but their life is a shambles, and they're constantly making foolish decisions. So knowledge in itself isn't wisdom. You have people with huge intellect like me, <laughs> colossal IQs. They've just, they're together. Yet they are arrogant. They are puffed up in themselves, so full of themselves. And to be honest, That wouldn't be my definition of wisdom either. Wisdom has got to be application of knowledge, application of intellect in a way that not only improves your life, but also does positive things on earth and positively impacts other people. Wisdom is a way of life that glorifies God. Wisdom is humility mixed in with your intelligence by which other people and yourself and your family and your community can be benefited. Wisdom is so much more than just knowledge and intelligence. And we're going to look at different ways that the Bible defines wisdom as we go through this session tonight. Here's some benefits, according to the Bible, of wisdom. Proverbs 3 and verses 13 to 18. And then we're just going to jump around a few Proverbs, uh, just throwing out some things that the book of Proverbs says about the benefits of wisdom. Okay, how blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain is better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand is riches and honor. There's a great benefit of wisdom. Her ways are pleasant ways and her paths are peace as a fruit and a byproduct of you having wisdom. She is a tree of life to those uh, who take hold of her, and happy is he who holds her fast. The wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. Okay, Proverbs 4, verse 8. Prize her, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. Proverbs 19, verse 8. He who gets wisdom loves his own soul, and he who keeps understanding finds good. You want to love your own soul? 
then get a grip of wisdom. Proverbs 24, verse 5. A wise man is strong, and a man of knowledge increases power. So wisdom is thoroughly beneficial for life. It is thoroughly beneficial for you to get hold of wisdom and lay hold of true wisdom and uh, allow it to affect your life. Here's what some people have said about wisdom. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says this, wisdom is the power to see, inclination to choose the best and the highest goal, together with the surest means of attaining it. Doug Larson defined wisdom in this way. He said, wisdom is the reward you get for a lifetime of listening where you would have preferred to talk. Here's another definition of wisdom. A wise man learns by experience of others. An ordinary man learns by his own experience. A fool learns by no one's experience. Okay, here's a couple of anonymous quotes. Wisdom is the quality that keeps you from getting into situations where you need it. That's good. A wise man learns from the mistakes of others. Nobody lives long enough to make all of them himself. That person, Anon, was very, very wise and intelligent. So how do you get this wisdom that the Bible speaks about? Well, step number one, this is a a quote you're going to hear reappearing time after time after time throughout the Bible. How to get wisdom is number one, and I think most importantly, above everything else, Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. According to that definition of wisdom, if you don't respect God's, then you haven't even begun to be wise. According to that definition of wisdom, if you fundamentally don't believe in God's, you are nowhere near wisdom. You may have intellect, you may have knowledge, but according to the Bible's definition of wisdom, you haven't even begun to be wise. In fact, the Bible, cheeky as it is, in Psalm 14 verse 1 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Hi, atheists. (laughs) Your atheistic buddy, share that verse with them. It will really encourage them. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Well, according to the Bible, it is absolute folly to not believe in the God who made you. It's like the car with a bit of intelligence. I'm a great car. Honda didn't manufacture me. You're a foolish car. Honda made you. if, If you stand back and think about it for a moment, if you're an atheist, stand back and think, if there was a God, right, Wouldn't it be absolute folly for the creation to say that the creator didn't make them? That's folly. That's the highest level of folly. And the flip side is the highest level of wisdom is not just to believe in God, but to have a deep fear of him. That's not like a a terror where you're walking around cowering, but a deep, utmost reverence and deep respect for this great God who created everything and who loves you with an intense love. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Now the thing is, a lot of people who would argue against respecting God and who would argue against having any form of belief in God may appear intelligent. God has blessed many people with intelligence, even atheists. (laughs) Interesting. Intelligent is great. And you know there's a lot of good people who wouldn't believe in God. People who are making a difference with their life. So I'm not knocking people in terms of their values, in terms of, but in terms of a belief system, the Bible says you're foolish if you don't even believe in the existence of God. You haven't even begun to be wise. Because there is an appearance of wisdom in people who would argue intellectually against God. Many people would say they're wise, 
because there is an appearance of wisdom. And the Bible describes this appearance of wisdom in two key passages. Here's a few references to this. One is in Romans 1 and verse 21. And it says, For even though they knew God's, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they came, became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man or of birds or four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So it's idol worship. For they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. In the Western culture, you don't see many people forming idols that they've carved out of their own hands and that they're bowing down to a tree trunk that they've made into the shape of some weird thing, and they're saying, oh God, and that doesn't happen that often. But what you often see is people worshipping their own achievements or abilities, or you see people worshipping materialism, or worshipping the creation rather than the creator, looking at, hey, isn't it so wonderful, all these things around us? And even, I've got an uncle who I'm very fond of, but he's not a believer in God, and I remember as a kid growing up saying, hey, Mum, why is it that Auntie Margaret and Uncle John don't go to church? And they overheard this and say, all right, uh, we worship in another way. And they like going out hill walking. Actually, they don't believe in God in the slightest, but they love the creation. And they're so excited about the things that have been made, although they won't acknowledge the creator. And if you step back for a moment and assume there is a God, that's folly to its utmost. They've, They've got so involved and excited about the creation and they've forgotten the one who made it all, who actually deserves the thanks and the praise for it. I think one of the most frustrating things that an atheist must face is having a deep sense of gratitude and thankfulness, but having no one to thank. That must be so frustrating. This, this seemingly form of wisdom gives many problems. For example, the wisdom of atheism removes God from the equation. If you remove God from the equation, you remove the possibility that you as an individual are accountable to a, a higher being. You're not accountable. You're just uh, an accident. You just happen to be. Therefore, values mean nothing. Now, no one believes values mean nothing if they're really honest with themselves. But the conclusion of that theory is that values are meaningless. And actually, because we're not accountable, we can actually live as we want. We can do as we want. We can do as we please. Here's the problem I have with the atheist who, just, who says that. Like, okay, there's no God, therefore we're unaccountable and we can live as we please. Okay, Mr. Atheist, try applying that theory in your marriage. Try and apply, applying that theory as a dad bringing up some kids. It doesn't work. I'll tell you my theory. My theory is that God made us. He created us in his image. And my theory tells me that the God in heaven, as well as being a just God who will judge the earth, he's also an intensely loving God. And this, this theory motivates me to love other people. In fact, God's greatest command is love him and love my neighbor. And as a result, I see all across this earth aid organizations, not motivated by atheism, but aid organizations motivated by the love of God, orphanages, education systems, healthcare systems, legal systems that are are actually enhancing the lives of human beings. Now, they're not perfect, but they're better than other philosophies would produce. The fruit 
of your philosophy proves a lot. Mr. Atheist, apply your attitude that, well, if it feels good, do it. I'm not accountable to anyone. Apply that in your marriage, mate. It's not going to work. Apply that in bringing up your kids. They're going to go off track. You'll damage them. And you can't tell your kids what not to do because then you're contradicting your own theory. You're saying you're unaccountable. James 3 and verse 13 to 17 says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show this by his good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. You see, true wisdom will bear good fruit. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes from above, but it's earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom that is above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. The wisdom of God, the wisdom that says, fear God, there is a creator, we are accountable, that wisdom will bear good fruit. Uh, You see, people who have these theories of atheism, they play with the theories. But if you were given the reins of a country, your theory would cause that country to fall into ruin. Because an unaccountable people is dangerous. That's not the case, Peter. Well, it absolutely is. Think of any example of an atheist ruling a nation. And you're going to see a nation in ruins. Louis Palau said this, Humanity has paid a steep, gruesome price for the awful experiments in deliberate atheism carried out by Lenin, Hitler, Stalin, Mao Tachong, and others. I do these things when I don't have a clear to say a word. Each of whom was profoundly influenced by the writings of the apostles of atheism. After watching atheism thing. It's clearer than ever that without God, we're lost. Folks, you give me another example of someone who was an atheist who created a terrific state, uh, a culture where people loved each other, a culture where families flourished, a culture where the healthcare system was good, a culture where there was true justice. There is not examples. But I'll show you Great Britain, and yet it's not perfect. But I'll show you a country that was so deeply influenced by the church at its roots. Now, these days we're moving away from those roots a church that was so deeply influenced by the teachings of Jesus Christ. Teachings which have actually formed the very basis of our legal system, did you know? Especially Jesus' teachings from Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes. This is the legal system which has caused civilization to exist here in Great Britain. The healthcare system and the education system were birthed from what? Church. That was what birthed it. Adopted by the government, it's now actually not performing as well as it used to. A fundamental belief in God, not just a belief in God, but a deep respect for our Creator and therefore a sense of we are accountable, brings such a wisdom to bear on your life that nothing else can bring. Luke 7 35, Jesus says, Wisdom is proved right by all her children. The proof is in the pudding. Your theory might sound intellectual, but when applied to life, it doesn't work. Matthew 7.20 says, you will know them by their fruits. I don't care what anyone says. You, 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 could, you could even say, well, Peter, I don't care what you say. Well, that's fine. Look at my kids. Look at my family. Look at my marriage. Analyze my life. 
ask me details. And if my life doesn't measure up to what I'm saying, then you have every right to disagree with what I say. But if, however, my life is bearing good fruits, then please pay attention. And that's how you should judge everyone. Judge them by their fruits, not by what they say necessarily. I'm not saying we've become skeptical people, but I'm saying look beyond just the surface and look at the fruit that someone's life is bearing. If there's a trail of good fruit, then it might well be that that person is operating in wisdom. Wisdom is proved right by her children. If you hold to a naturalistic or atheistic point of view of the, in this world, you're going to find it hard to prove that human beings are all equal. J.P. Moreland, uh, who, who I would thoroughly recommend if, if you want to hear more about intellectual way, more about this whole subject of philosophies of life and such, like J.P. Moreland tells a story. Go, hold, get, go get hold of some of his MP3s. J.P. Moreland tells a story about how he was at home and it was Martin Luther King Day in America, and his daughter had just come home from school. And he said, hi, honey, what did you learn today? And she said, it's Martin Luther King Day, and I heard today that all men were created equal before God. And he said, all right, do you believe that? And she said, yeah, I believe that. And he said, okay, wait a minute, let's just assume for a moment there's no God. Do you still believe that? And she said, well, yeah, I believe that. What do you mean? And she said, well, okay, prove to me that all people are equal and take God out of the equation. So she thought about it for a moment. And then he said, okay, right, honey, here on the wall is a very expensive, famous painting. And he pointed at the painting. And he said, and down here is a little sketch I did for your sister last night, and it's a little stick person. Okay? If there was a fire in this house, what one would you grab? Obviously, she'd grab the masterpiece. Because there's something in us that says it's wrong to treat something equal when something has more value than something else. That would be fundamentally wrong. You tracking? So if that, if that painting is more valuable, which it is, than that stick picture that took five minutes or two seconds to sketch, it would be wrong to treat that stick painting in the same way as you would treat that valuable painting. We agree. There's something fundamentally wrong about treating things equal that are valuably not equal. Okay, human beings. Some human beings are evil. They kill people. They're no help to society. They're layabouts. They treat others with disdain. Other human beings are intelligent. They work hard. They enhance the life of others. They're good citizens. They benefit the world. If you try and somehow prove that all human beings are equal and not include God in that equation, you're going to find it very, very hard. Because naturally looking at it, it looks like some human beings are more valuable than others. But my philosophy in life is this. The Bible says we are created in the image of God. You're not animals. You're not monkeys who get lucky. I don't believe that. I believe you are created distinctly in the image of God. That means you are highly, highly valuable. And that child from the moment of conception, not three months in, day one. In fact, second one right through to the point when that life passes on into eternity. That person deserves to be protected, loved, and cared for. Whether they're disabled, whether they're seemingly failures, whether they're unemployed layabouts, or whether they're highly intelligent, successful people with a big bank balance. Every human being deserves great worth. I don't care your skin color. I don't care your background. I don't care your religious persuasion. Whoever you are, God values you, therefore we value you. 
And I believe in a God who, in, who inf- confers value upon us. And that this theory of believing in God inspires love and values. Robert A. Laylaw said this, God exists whether or not men may choose to believe in him. The reason why many people do not believe in God is not so much that it is intellectually impossible to believe in God, but more because the belief in God forces a thoughtful person to face the fact that he is accountable to such a God. Tom Stobbert said, atheism is a crutch for those who cannot bear the reality of God. (laughs) These are really cheeky quotes. Which brings us right back to the fear of God. If we are accountable to a God who made everything, then I would say it isn't wise to shake your fist at that God. The, the guy who gets locked up in a prison for committing crimes, it would be crazy for that guy to be in that prison and say, oh, that government, that prison service, this policeman that got me, dobbed me in, I'm going to get him when I come out. That would be foolish. The wise thing would be, oh, I've been caught for a crime I've committed. I need to reform my ways. I need to become a good citizen. And when I come out, I'm not going to do that again. It's called the fear of God. Why shake your fist at God? Why not just get on his side? Why not just say, God, you are true, you are just, you are perfect, and I'm going to humble myself and live for you. That's called the fear of God. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The second way you get wisdom is ask God for wisdom. If he's the source of all wisdom, if he is ultimate wisdom, then come to him and ask him for wisdom. The Bible says in James 1 and verse 5, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. And I love another verse, another translation of that verse. And it says, If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Isn't that great? He doesn't think, Yeah, I'll give some to you, but you're a numpty. You're not getting any. All right? Egypt, you're not getting any. Give it to them instead. The Bible says, He gives generously to all men without finding fault. You know what? God just loves us and he's just waiting for us to ask. So if you want wisdom, very simple. Come to him and say, God, give me wisdom. I I would say this is my most common prayer because I don't think I'm that wise. I pray this regular. Every day, there's decisions to be made. Every week, there's decisions to be made. When we were looking for a building to buy as a church, there was tons of decisions to be made. Now that the legal process is well underway and our lawyers are talking to their lawyers, hundreds of decisions to be made. Constantly decisions. When I'm sitting down talking to someone who is talking to me about some big issues in their life and they're looking to me for answers, in my heart I'm saying, God, give me wisdom. Every day we need wisdom. And that's probably my most common prayer. God, today, give me wisdom. God, this week, as I'm going to go to that meeting, as I'm going to speak to those people, as I'm going to go to that situation, please, God, would you give me wisdom to know what to do in that situation in that situation when I speak to that person? God, give me wisdom. Do you know what? He does. He does. I look back and say, God, thank you for a, a list of good decisions. Thank you for a, a track record of right decisions. Thank you, God, for guiding us. The Bible puts it in another way in Proverbs 3 and verse 5 and in verse 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths or he will make your paths straight so in all your ways God help give me wisdom acknowledge him in all your ways what do I do now God help 
The Bible promises that he will direct your paths. He will guide you. So just keep that connection live. It's like you're on CB, like you're lost in the middle of nowhere. The guy in the helicopter knows where you are and he wants to guide you through that maze. Where do I go now? Turn left. Okay. And the thing about God is he doesn't tell you all the steps miles ahead. Personally, I'd forget them all. What did he say again? He just tells you the next step and then he tells you the next step. Now that's frustrating. But I tell you the good thing about it is this. It keeps me in contact. And if you told me all the steps, I'd say, thanks God, see you when I die. Then I'd be off. <laughs> but I reckon God actually likes fellowship. God knows us conniving little so-and-sos. So he keeps us in contact and he gives you the next step. And that also keeps you in faith. It stops you moving into presumption and arrogance, thinking you've got it all worked out. It keeps you humble, it keeps you walking, it keeps you acknowledging, and it keeps you close to him. So if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all men without finding fault. The third way that I would suggest we can get wisdom, Proverbs 13 verse 20, it says, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools suffer harm. Okay, here's one real good way of becoming a nut. Find some nuts, become their buddy. You know what you're going to be? You're going to be a nut. You want to be a wise person? Go hang out with wise people. It's not rocket science, folks. But it's just simple, biblical common sense. If you look back over your life, okay, review your life. Look at some of the great things you've learned. Look at some of the great moments. And think to yourself, hey, there were actually people involved in those moments. Someone gave me advice, and that turned out real good. Also, maybe look back over some of the great disasters in your life and look at the people involved causing those things. And you see that the companion of fools do suffer harm. That's in retrospect. Now, what you do is you think, okay, I believe there's wisdom in what the Bible's saying here. And then you project forward and think, how am I going to live in the future? So then you've got to figure, golly, what kind of people do I want to hang out with? Do I want to hang out with crazy people who have up till now done me no good? Or do I want to get some friends who are going to do me some good? Now, I'm not saying you withdraw to your monasteries and have nothing to do with the worldly people out there. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the people who are influencing you have got to be good people. But equally, you've got to be an influencer to other people as well. Give away what you're getting. Share the wisdom you're learning. Not in some arrogant way, but be a friend to others who need friends. People who need good friends, be a friend to them. But don't let their badness or their negativity or the stuff that's going on in their life affect you negatively. I said this this morning, influence is a liquid, it flows. It either flows from you or it flows to you. So you've got to make sure that the influence flowing from you is positive to others. And you become a wise person that they can walk with and thus become wise. And equally, the wisdom that's, sorry, the influence that's flowing to you, make sure it's positive. If it's not, if you can't change your friends, then change your friends. Get quality friends who are going to influence your life and help you move forward in the right direction. Uh, there was a study, you know, in, in America they have these mentoring systems of big brothers and big sisters. In 1995, uh, there was an impact study of how that mentoring has actually affected people's lives. And this is what, this is what the conclusions were, that youths who were mentored were 46% less likely to begin using illegal drugs, 53% less likely to skip school, and 33% less likely to get in fights. 
And so there's just the obvious wisdom. If you are mentored by quality people, if you're influenced by good people, not even being mentored, just your buddies, just your peer-level buddies that you're hanging out with. If they're fundamentally good people going in a good way, you're going to go in a good way in life. One of the great benefits of coming to church is, you see, you know what? People say, well, church is full of hypocrites. And I say, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. That's why you're so welcome, because you're a hypocrite too. Good to have you here, fellow hypocrite. The only difference between hypocrites in here and hypocrites out there is we're saying, you know what? We are hypocrites. We want to change. Please help us, God. <laughs> right? It's, it's called taking responsibility and saying, you know, I, I don't want to stay the way I am. I want to grow. God, please forgive me and help me to get wisdom to grow. Okay? We're all hypocrites. Hypocrite simply means you say you want to do certain things, but you don't do it. That is the situation for all of humanity. Okay? So, of course, we're hypocrites. And someone once said, if you, if you haven't been offended in this church, you haven't been here long enough. Guaranteed, you hang around church for a bit, you're going to find some people here. And the bummer about people is they hurt each other, and they offend each other, and they do it people in here, and they do it people out there. It's not a reflection of who God is or what church should be. Church is an awesome place. The amazing thing about church is you've got a gathering of people who wouldn't usually hang out with each other. You've got people who from all different sectors of society. You've got ex-junkies sitting beside bankers. People who are wealthy sitting beside people who are poor. People from one culture, from another side of the world, sitting beside another culture, from an opposite side of the world. You get Ouija's preaching to Edinburghers, right? <laughs> you got Jambo and, ja- and Hibs fans, right, in the one place. In, in our church soon, we're going to have a, a Hearts campus and a Hibs campus. Right? <laughs> we're going to bring unity, buddies. You know, where else do you get that? Where else do you get that? It's incredible. Usually, people hang out with people like them. There's a fly flying around here somewhere. Who's in the fly? It landed in my head this morning. <laughs> Can't believe it. I was speaking at a weekend away uh, down at Whittaff Park. I've been there two weekends in a row. And the first one was with Edinburgh University students. And there was a hundred of them there, and I was the guest speaker. And there was a bat flying around the auditorium. <laughs> <laughs> and this time, with it, Napier University, Edinburgh College of Art, Queen Margaret University, and Harriet Watt. That, I was a guest speaker again. It was, again, 120-odd students. And this time there's a butterfly flying around the place. So we've got fly here. So Anyway, that's why I said that. <laughs> yeah, coming to church. Full of, full of different people and flies and all sorts of different situations. But where else do you get that in society? Usually, kind of architects hang out with architects. Intellectuals hang out with intellectuals. People who like knitting hang out with people who like knitting. And they, ooh, do you, is that how you, oh yeah, me too. Yeah, cool. Oh, fantastic. Do you like red wool? Oh yeah, red wool. No way, I love red wool too. Incredible. So you've got all these great things in common that you have so much to talk about. But here at church, all we've got in common, right, is Jesus. And, you know, everyone's different. And that is incredible. Because you don't get that anywhere else. And you know what? We're fighting to make it work. And it is working. And you know what? We would even say we love each other. And that's incredible. And we are hypocrites, yeah. But there is a wisdom walking with wise people. And here in this environment, young folks learn from the older folks. They may be old and grumpy, but they are wise. (laughs) 
or old and joyful, like Nancy. Sorry, young and joyful. Middle-aged and joyful, like Nancy. So I said, if you haven't been offended in church, you haven't been here long enough. You know, or, or poor folks, learn from rich folks. One of the only environments you'll get a chance to, seriously. Maybe they'll give you a handout. Cool. Rich folks, learn from poor folks. You're just hanging out with guys like you. Man, you, you don't know what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes. Get to know someone who's struggling a bit. Let it challenge you. Africans, learn from Australians. I'm serious. All different cultures. Let's mix. Let's get to know each other. Let's gain corporate wisdom amongst each other. Walk with wise. You, come, you become wise. Church is an incredible environment. I encourage you, if you don't usually go to church, come along. It's brilliant. The guy at the front is so funny. There's tons of stuff happening. There's lots of great things, and it provokes you to think, and it gets you moving with God Almighty. He's incredible. Fourthly and finally, how to gain wisdom. Read the Bible. The Bible, in Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. All right, so simple people, the Bible will make you wise. What do you mean? Yeah. The Bible will make you wise, simple people. It will sharpen you up. I actually believe the Bible will sharpen your intellect. I actually believe that. I really believe that. Charles Dickens, here's a quote by Charles Dickens. He says, the New Testament is the very best book that was ever or ever will be known to the world. Charles Dickens, a man with great intellect, acknowledges the wisdom of the Bible. That's humility. And I believe the Bible actually sharpens your intellect. The other thing about the Bible is sometimes it's challenging. In fact, all the time it's challenging. It constantly challenges your perception of God, constantly challenges your perception of who you are. And you know what? That's healthy. It's easy to read books that tell you you're a great dude. The Bible tells you that as well. It says you're great. It doesn't say the dude bit. But it says lots of great challenging things. It says encouraging things. It says thought-provoking things. It gives you concepts that you may have never seen. It gives you a worldview that is totally not the worldview of the world. The worldviews out there are totally contrary to some of the worldviews in here. For example, Jesus says incredibly wise things like this. If you want to be great, then be a servant. That's wisdom. The world would say, if you want to be great, you fight your way to the top. But Jesus says, if you want to be great, be a servant. In fact, Jesus, who we believe is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that's what the Bible says about him. He said, I haven't come to be served, I've come to serve. To give my life as a ransom for many. That's wisdom. That's, that's humility. That's totally contrary to the world's way. You see, in the world's viewpoint, king and servant, they don't go together. But in God's book, they do. It's not about what you can get, it's about what you can give. It totally turns on the head the world's viewpoint. It stops a dog-eat-dog mentality, and it challenges you to live for other people, not for yourself. Wow. That's good stuff. It's healthy. It's really healthy. The Bible is written over a period of 1,500 years, written over 40 generations by 44 authors at least, from all different walks of life, written by kings, written by peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, scholars, 
people from all different walks of life, written in different places, in wildernesses, in dungeons, in palaces, written in different times, in war and in peace, written in different moods, from the heights of joy to the depths of despair, written in three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, written with different genres of literature, with poetry, letters, songs, history, statistics, already has been fulfilled prophecy in the Bible. There's been 3,286 verses of fulfilled prophecy already. I don't know many books that compare to that, to be honest. It is the world's all-time bestseller, and it's been already released in 3,000 languages. There isn't much that compares to that, folks. There isn't much that compares to that. You know what? The Bible, as a historical document, has undergone more scrutiny because some people who have a point to prove will put it under scrutiny. The Bible has undergone more scrutiny than any other book referring to history. It has gone through more testing of its literary quality and of its historical accurateness than any other book in all of literature. And yet it stands the test of time, folks. Things that people, like for example, little incidental details, like Jesus healed a man at the pool of Bethsaida. Remember the story? The man was there waiting for the angel to come and stir up the waters. And just before that passage, it says, Jesus went to the pool of Bethsaida that had five pillars at the pool. A little coincidental detail. A lot of liberal theologians who want, who want to disprove the Bible say, because in Bethsaida there is no evidence that there's ever a pool there. So they say, that story didn't even happen, folks, let alone there being a miracle. And that was the he- commonly held to belief for many, many years, for decades and generations, people trying to disprove the Bible. But recently, archaeologists have found the remains of a pool in Bethsaida, and guess what? It's got five pillars. Little, a little throwaway incidental detail. Folks, I believe the Bible is historically accurate. I don't believe it's a storybook. I believe it's historically accurate. I believe it can be totally trusted and depended upon. I think people more intelligent than us have built their lives upon it. The fruit of the Bible, and that's a biggie. If you live by the Bible, folks, it will make you a better husband, a better wife. It will make you honorable kids to your parents. It will, as parents, empower you to discipline and bring your kids up in an, an empowering way that will help them to reach their potential. You can build a culture on it. You can build churches on it. You can build orphanages on it. You can build civilization on this book, folks. No other book comes near. It stood the test of time. George Washington, he said about the Bible, it is impossible to righteously govern the world without God and the Bible. Ronald Reagan I don't think this quote is up here. Ronald Reagan said that within the covers of one single book, the Bible, are all the answers to the problems that face us today if we would only read and believe. Personally, I found this book a revolution. I found it absolutely revolutionary. I remember from from just becoming a Christian age 15, three years ago, (laughs) reading that book. See, a while back I said that and everyone, all right, okay. They don't believe me anymore. That's scary. I'm 31 now. Reading, reading the Bible from, uh, from my early teens, sorry, mid-teens, and finding, you know what, I, was, I would be thinking things that day or be having situations and dealing with that day. I picked the Bible up, and guess what? It answers the questions I had. 
it speaks, sometimes it's uncanny. It's, it's depicting the exact same scenario as in. Freaky. You know what? You can read a novel and you read that novel once over, but if you pick it up again and read it through again, do you know what? It's kind of, it doesn't, it's lost its impact. You've read it before. It just doesn't do it again for you. But you can read the Bible. You can read the same verse multiple times over and every time it leaps off the page and speaks right into your spirit like no other book does. It is supernatural, this book. Supernatural. The prophecies in this book alone predicting the coming of Jesus is incredible. You know, this is what Dr. Charles Ryrie says, who is one of the leading scholars uh, in statistics and looking at the Bible with, with statistics in mind. He says that according to the laws of chance, it would require 200 billion earths, populated by 4 billion people in each earth, to come up with one person whose life could fulfill 100 accurate prophecies without any error in sequence. Yet the scriptures record not 100s, but over 300 prophecies fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus alone. That's incredible. Most of those 300 prophecies were out with Jesus' control. Like you could say, well, he aligned his life so he would fulfill them. Well, he didn't choose where he was born, but the Bible predicted it. The Bible predicted he would be born of a virgin. He was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. The Bible told us where he would grow up in Nazareth. The Bible told us in his childhood he would have the flight to Egypt. And I don't know what flight company it was with, but he got there. Probably a cheapy airline. It, it, it talks about his, his upbringing. It talks about his, his development. It talks about how he would die on a cross. That was out with his control. It talks about how on the cross he would die between criminals. It talks about how he'd be laid in a rich man's tomb. It talks about how he'd be pierced in his hands long before Roman crucifixion was ever invented. It talks about how his beard would be plucked from his face on that cross. It talks about how he would not just be a man, but he would be indeed God taking on human flesh. Not just another man, but God Almighty. The Bible predicts how he would be placed in a tomb and three days later would be resurrected. And the Bible also predicts that his life would become not just a hope for the Jews, but his life would be the one in whom the Gentiles, the non-Jews, put their hope in him. And that all over this world, the Bible predicts that the greatest movement ever will be birthed through that man. And you look today, out of the six billion of our world's population, two billion people, one third of our world's population, would claim to follow Jesus Christ. There's nothing comes close, folks. Nothing comes close. The fruit is there. The Bible is accurate. The prophecies are fulfilled. The worldview will enhance your life rather than take away from your life. The wisdom of God would say, you know what? This book can make wise the simple. So folks, I want to say, let's, let's fear God. Let's fear Him. Let's deeply reverence Him. Let that sense of there is a God and we are accountable. That's good. It harnesses you in. That's quality. We need that. And then let's put our trust in this God. Let's come to Him in humility. And you know this book, the Bible, folks, it will give you wisdom. And I believe the Bible has got one big story, and it's his story. That's what history is all about. It's about Jesus Christ. As you look in the Old Testament, you see prophecies predicting the coming of Jesus. As you look in the New Testament, you see the life of Jesus, which clearly depicts how God in heaven is not just interested in you, but he came to earth, paid a price for you on a cross, 
He rose again on the third day, and the Bible says if you put your trust in him, turn your life over to him, and stop just living for self, but live for him, and allow him to motivate you to live for others, that will change your life. The Bible promises that if you believe in Jesus, you'll have eternal life. These great promises are for you. So I want to encourage us, folks, to embrace the wisdom the Bible gives us and embrace the wisdom that God wants to endow in your life. Let's pray. Okay, take a moment to uh, pray back your own response to God. If, if you feel there's something that, that, that's been shared, maybe some of the Bible verses we've looked at or some of the things we've shared, if you feel, you know, there's something in that and I, I need to pray about that, just take a moment just now just to pray to God about that. God, thank you. You are ultimately wisdom. God, you are all-knowing. You're all-wise. And God, we here believe that you are the creator and that God, in you, we can find full and meaningful life. God, thank you that you're a God who motivates us to value every human being equally because we are created in the image of God. You're a God who himself came and intervened in human history And Jesus Christ, you were born of a virgin, lived an incredible, admirable, awesome, miraculous life. At the end of it all, Jesus, you died on the cross, not for your own sins, because there's no record of any sin in your life, but you died on our behalf. And we are sinners, we know that. And Jesus, we believe you rose again on the third day. We believe you're alive now. And Jesus, by your spirit, you're in this room willing and able to heal sick bodies as we've seen you do so often here Lord willing and able to save souls to change people not in any superficial way but right down in the deep recesses of their heart you can change them God if we'll only put our trust in you if we'll only come to you and allow you to do something in us thank you God and God we want to start with wisdom by saying we fear you God We revere you, we honor you, and we want to place our lives in your hands. Just while everyone's eyes are closed, I just want to give you an opportunity just now. While everyone else is praying, if tonight you're saying, Peter, I haven't connected with this God, but I want to. I don't want to live for myself anymore. I want to come and put my faith in God. I want to accept what Jesus did for me on the cross. And I don't understand it all, but I just know in my heart of hearts that I want this relationship with God. I want his forgiveness. And I want to know that I am eternally secure when I die. And if that's you, you, that's a wise desire. And I would love the privilege of just helping you just now to make that connection with God. So in a moment, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Maybe it's the case that you had some faith in God in the past, but for whatever reason, you've walked away from God. Maybe you blamed him for the bad stuff. I want to tell you, God wasn't to blame. He's not the problem, he's your answer. So whoever you are and you need to come to God tonight, why don't you pray this prayer as well? So if you want to come to God, whoever you are, pray this prayer with me just now. Not out loud, repeat it after me, just quietly, just under your breath, between you and God. Pray like this, dear Lord God, I thank you for your great love for me. I thank you you love me so much you sent Jesus. Jesus, thank you you lived an incredible life. 
and you died a gruesome death. Tonight, I believe you died for me. I am a sinner, and I know that. I've rebelled against you. I've lived for self for so long. But Jesus, you died so I could be forgiven. And right now, I'm asking you for that forgiveness. Please give me a new start now. Thank you. Thank you. Jesus, I believe that three days later, you rose again. And today I put my trust in you, risen Jesus. In fact, I make you the Lord of my life. I'm willing for you to be number one from here on. I place my future in your hands. And I make a commitment today to not just to live my own way anymore, but that from here on in, I'm going to live an accountable life for you. I'm going to live to please you, God. Thanks for hearing my prayer. Thanks, God, for accepting me tonight as your child. Amen. Keep your eyes closed just for a moment. Keep your eyes closed. Keep praying. If anyone's here this evening and you prayed that prayer and you, you know you meant it, then you've just done a marvelous thing. And I have to tell you that God has heard your prayer. Something's changed now. And I would love the privilege of praying for you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you to the front. I'm not going to get you to stand up or anything like that. Just where you're sitting, while everyone else's eyes are closed, if you prayed that prayer, I want to pray for you. Can you indicate to me you prayed it by simply raising your hand? Is there anyone like that tonight? You prayed the prayer, just pop your hand up, let me know you did it. And then I'll put your hand down again and I'll pray for you. Anyone like that tonight? You've just done a marvelous thing. Thanks. Anyone else? Put your hand up, let me know you prayed it. Lord, I want to thank you for this precious lass who has today prayed an incredible prayer. God, she has put her faith in you, Jesus. She's asked you for your forgiveness. And I thank you that according to the Bible, she's now forgiven, that you have accepted her, and that you consider her your child. And I ask, God, that she will know your love in this very moment. The Holy Spirit, you'd empower her to now live for you, and to, as she's given her future into your hands, I pray you'd lead her, God. God, one day she's going to stand before you, but until then, I pray that she would live an incredible life guided by your Spirit, full of your wisdom. God, thank you for her. Thank you you accept her. Thank you she, by putting her faith in you, now has eternal life. And I pray she'd know the joy of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, let's stand to our feet.